You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1849th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 7th of October. The editor of this edition is Katrina Morris, the producer is Roger Morris and Colin and your readers are Neil Keeley and Sue Cunningham-Snell. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. And we will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And we will now start, as usual, with our headlines. And my first headline is Brexit to blame for butcher shortage, says pig farmer set to quit industry. Is PM set to boost bid for Sizewell C? Residents feel let down and conned over leisure plans. Cancellations as hotel booked for Afghan refugees. Simon Washcourt from Ersham Park Farm near Bungie believes the ongoing issue facing pig farmers, which could see more than 100,000 animals slaughtered and then incinerated, has stemmed from the Brexit and poor political decisions. Mature pigs ready for processing are backing up on thorns. As at stage in their life, pigs put on about a kilogram of weight per day, which means very quickly the pigs can become too large or heavy to process. There are a lot of people going out of business. I, for one, am packing up, said Simon. I've been doing it for 27 years. This is probably the straw that broke the camel's back. There'll be 600 sows selling 50,000 pigs just gone. The long-time farmer is set to sell his last pigs at the end of June 2022. Large processing plants have hundreds of butchers working at the same time butchering carcasses, which Simon described as a very skilled job, which is not traditionally done by British workers. How many European workers have returned home though Simon doesn't blame them and doubts they will return as they have now been made positively unwelcome. He said, the farmers have got them, we have customers, the supermarkets want to buy them, but there aren't enough butchers. There's one weak link in the chain and that's this number of butchers. They are running around 25 to 30 percent short of staff. It's a nine-month process to raise a pig from impregnating a sow to slaughtering them, and the highly organised weekly system requires moving pigs out from one end to let new pigs in. The options for removing the larger pigs from the system become very narrow. They can be taken to a slaughterhouse, 
that slaughter sows, that Simon says there are only really three in the country. Other pig farmers Simon has spoken to have been struggling, especially in the north, including one farmer on the phone who was in tears having their weekly number of pigs sold cut from 1,000 to 200. There's two possibilities. One is these animals are slaughtered and what's called boxed, Simon said. Instead of butchering them, you cut them into primal cuts, hams, shoulders, loins and bellies. You put them in a cardboard box, put them in a container and sell them cheap abroad. The alternative is on-farm slaughter. Perfectly wholesome meat will have to be slaughtered out into a truck and rendered thrown away. What a waste of food that is disgusting that an industry is in a position to have to do that. Temporary visas have been the government's short-term solution for a shortage of lorry drivers and poultry workers, but so far the same has not been extended to the pig farming industry. You don't train these people overnight. You can't find them overnight. Putting them in for three months and telling them they've got to go home on Christmas Eve is an insult. It's just a gimmick. Posture politics. We need action now. Simon thinks the origin of the crisis comes from the government and Brexit. But there was too quick a change without a proper plan. Prime Minister Boris Johnson addressed the issue when asked by Andrew Marr. The Prime Minister said, I hate to break it to you, but I'm afraid our food processing industry does involve the killing of a lot of animals. I think your viewers need to understand that. When it was pointed out to him the pigs could not be sold for food and would have to be disposed of, he accused the presenter of trying to obstigate. It is understood that the Prime Minister will use his speech at the Conservative Party conference on Wednesday to commit to a massive investment programme in renewable and nuclear power. He's also understood to be committing to the construction of at least two large-scale nuclear power plants. Mr Johnson told The Times, We've got to get back into nuclear. We've got to increase our clean energy generation. That will bring the cost of energy down and bring down the cost of transport. EDF said that the power station would be vital to meeting the UK's climate commitments. A spokesman for EDF said the station will generate enough low-carbon power for 6 million homes and save 9 million tonnes of CO2 every year of its 60-year lifespan and will offset its construction emissions within five to six months of operation. It will help replace the low-carbon nuclear stations that are now reaching the end of operation and help the UK move away from polluting fossil fuels. Furthermore, Sizewell C will enable more renewable generation because it provides the baseload, large-scale, dependable, low-carbon electricity needed whatever the weather. Here in Suffolk, Sizewell C will boost jobs, skills and employment and agreements are already in place with education and business partners to ensure that the local areas benefit. 
However, campaigners have said there are serious concerns about nuclear power's green credentials. Alison Downs from Stop Size Will See said, It makes no sense to back Size Will See. It's not only much too slow and expensive to solve our climate emergency, let alone our short-term energy crisis. Serious questions remain whether the technology actually works. Given increasing evidence, size will see would be obsolete by the time it was built and growing concern about the cost to consumers and taxpayers already hit with rising bills and taxes, the government should not waste our money but divert policy support and funds to more renewables, storage, clean heat and energy efficiency. Residents on the growing Marham Park estate in Fornham or Saints say they feel conned after plans for a leisure facility were shelved. In 2016, Countryside Homes' overall developer of the 1,137 home estate was granted approval for a master plan, including 65 acres of country park and open space, village square with amenities, allotments, leisure facilities, sport pitches with pavilion and three play areas. However, in August, Countryside applied to West Suffolk Council for outline permission to build 76 homes on plot Parcel P, which was earmarked for a commercial indoor sports leisure facility in the master plan. Countryside said Parcel P, together with a separate plot for outdoor sport pitches, had been marketed to leisure operators for four years with extremely limited interest. The 2016 planning permission stipulated if the sport pitches were not sold to a commercial operator by September 2023, the land would be transferred to West Suffolk Council with a financial contribution to build the sports pitches to be potentially ready by 2025. Now Countryside says if it is able to build homes on Parcel P, it would build the sports pitches and pavilion by 2023 and transfer those facilities to the Council for public use. However, residents say they feel conned after estate marketing promised a village-style development with amenities. Meanwhile, Nick Smith, who operates the playground outdoor assault course in Barrow, said his interest in developing a similar assault course, along with a crazy goal for archery facilities on Parcel P, was thwarted by a high guide price for the freehold. When I was told they would welcome bids of £4 million upwards, I couldn't help but laugh, said Nick. Marham Park resident Tracy Price of Redwood Drive said in her objection to the outline plans, We don't need more housing. We need the facilities that were promised. In this, a case of profit for countryside being put before the needs of the residents. Brani Allen of Martin Reed Walk said, We've been let down and conned. Jessica Bilverstone of Western Drive said, 
Developers should not get away with selling a dream they had no intentions of fulfilling. District Councillor Diane Hind, who represents a neighbouring Tollgate Ward, said she felt Countryside should keep trying to find a leisure operator. A spokesman for Countryside said, Rather than leaving the land dormant, Countryside is now seeking planning permission for up to 76 much-needed additional homes. As part of these plans, Countryside would deliver the sport pitches and pavilion two years earlier than originally envisaged, with the local authority able to make these amenities available to the community, providing real sporting benefits for local people. Events at a Stowmarket Hotel have been cancelled at the last moment after the government block-booked its rooms for Afghan refugees. The Best Western Cedars Hotel in Stowmarket will house those fleeing the Taliban. But as a, as a result of the government block-booking, long-planned events at the Needham Road Hotel have been cancelled. Luke Darren, who had booked Cedars Hotel's function room for a 30th birthday party, was told the event was cancelled by hotel managers. Organisers of another event, a Stowmarket High School 40-year reunion, were also told the event next month was off. They have now changed its location. Reunion organisers apologised to people who might not be able to attend because of the location change, but added they hoped the venue change is still achievable to all and we can still reunite in Copdock, and it was a humanitarian crisis they could not have foreseen. Meanwhile, a couple nine days into a six-week booking at the hotel were told last Tuesday that they would have to leave by Friday, potentially leaving them homeless for a month. Stephen Burrows and his wife Michelle, who in May made a six-week booking for September for a room with kitchenette facilities during major roadworks at their home, faced a fraught few days as they struggled to organise alternative accommodation for themselves and cat Charlie. Eventually they were offered a room at Best Western Priory Hotel in Bury St Edmunds and moved in on Sunday. However, they now have no cooking facilities, while Michelle is having to fund daily return taxis to work in Stowmarket as she does not drive. They've matched the price we were paying at the Cedars, but we are still expecting to pay an extra two to three hundred pounds a week for food and taxes, said Stephen. The stress of trying to find somewhere was unbelievable. Julie Campbell, a group manager at Best Western Hotel, confirmed on social media there was a government contract in place. The Home Office and Suffolk County Council were asked for comment, but were not in a position to provide one. And now we're going to move on to our general news. And my first one is something rather special because it's about Christmas baubles to celebrate the newborns of 2021. Michelle Freeman of Art Group The Crafty Foxes and Bury St Edmunds and Beyond Chairman Melanie Lesser have joined forces again, this time for a Christmas celebration of the year's lockdown babies. Last year, the pair's 
stars of 2020 project saw Christmas trees around Bury St Edmunds adorned with ceramic stars, which had positive memories of the first lockdown of then. Now the focus is on the newborns of 2021, who will have something to treasure with the Trees of Hope project. Michelle said, we did the stars last year that were about their positives in lockdown and were very well received. But this year, we're saying, look to the future with all these babies. We are offering anybody who has had a baby this year the opportunity to make a time capsule keepsake bauble. We want to fill the new year with hopes, wishes and good intentions, which we all need right now. And that is the point with this, to forget what has been and look forward. Each bauble with biogradable rainbow ribbon will show the name of the baby as well as the date on which they were born on the outside. The inside is where the real memory will be made. Michelle said, we will have details about the baby, including their weight and the time they were born on cards inside the bauble. But also there will be a message of hope from their loved ones. For example, my daughter loves Cinderella. So we say, have courage and be kind. So with these sorts of messages, we hope they will make fantastic keepsakes. The trees given to the project by Ruffham Estate will feature on Angel Hill at St Edmundsbury Cathedral in the Traverse and in the front of the Theatre Royal. The time capsule baubles will go onto these trees when the town's Christmas lights are switched on on November the 18th and taken down when the lights are turned off. Michelle said, We will fill the trees with the finished baubles, but the theatre roll one will continue to be added on as clearly babies are still being born after this started. The first mother to complete a bauble for her baby, Willoughby, who was born on August the 14th this year, was Lisa Pryke from Blackford. She said, I really love the idea. When Michelle told me about it, I thought this would be really special. We really like the stars they did as well last year, so this is just great. The chance is also being open to include babies on behalf of lockdown babies who were born somewhere else if a relative lives in or close to Barry, Michelle said, for example, a grandparent could do one on behalf of a grandchild who lives in another country. So long as the grandparent lives around here, they can do it. After the baubles are taken off the trees, a soon-to-be-confirmed place will be organised in January for them to be collected. But Michelle hopes the legacy of this initiative will continue way beyond the start of 2022. She said, the idea of all of this is that when these children are 18, they can open these baubles with their message of hope inside. We came up with this idea as we are hooked into the hopes for this new generation, as these children will go on to be the future of Barry. And that is really important to both of us. A woman who walked and ran the equivalent distance of Land's End to John O'Groats 
to fund a play specialist at West Suffolk Hospital has seen her own sister take on the role. Sarah Bones of Barrow finished the 874-mile virtual course, which included a marathon around the villages close to where she lives, on September the 4th, after starting in November last year. The £1,516 raised has gone towards funding the new role at West Suffolk Hospital, which her sister, Claire Thompson, has now taken on. Sarah said, I'm not a runner, but I did a bit of running throughout the challenge to help get me ready for the marathon, which was a bit of a circuit. The majority of the time I was walking some of the distance from my home, and when I got the opportunity I got out and ran about three times a week. Sarah, who's an account manager at a water techniques company in Bury St Edmunds, added... It's wonderful that I've raised this money for my sister so she can carry on her good work at the West Suffolk. It was lovely and it became a real personal thing. I could never work at the hospital, but this is my way of doing something for them as they do such a great job. The idea to do the challenge came to Sarah during lockdown last year. She said that she wanted to do something to get out and about and chose My Wish charity as part of their 25th anniversary campaign. Her sister Claire used to work as a play specialist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge but applied for the role at West Suffolk after finding out that they needed one. Sally Daniels, fundraising manager for My Wish, congratulated Sarah on completing her almost year-long challenge. Our fundraisers are so inspirational, she said. To spend so many months completing a challenge is just incredible, and the sum raised by Sarah is fantastic. Having Claire ironically join the trust in the role we are fundraising for is just the icing on the cake. She has already become a great asset. Thurston organisations showcase the best of the village at its big weekend event on Saturday and Sunday. Initially planned as a way of welcoming all the new residents who have moved into the village, it also served to reunite villagers kept apart during the pandemic and to highlight the best of the village to prospective new residents. From circus skills to Zumba Gold and a charity head shave, it was all on the agenda. Organised by the Friends of Thurston Library working with the Parish Council, the big weekend was a vibrant celebration with a packed timetable. Anne O'Connell of Thurston Library Friends said, Planning started seven months ago when it became clear the coronavirus vaccination programme was gathering pace. We thought the majority of the events could be held outdoors to be COVID safe and enjoyable. We wanted the weekend to be fun and to help to raise our spirits after such a difficult time, as well as give an insight into life in Thurston. It does seem to have done just that. For the past 18 months, people have been moving into the new developments in the village, but a lot of what goes on here has been closed. So it was a chance to open everything up. It was a great weekend. We have had really good feedback and said the library friends would be regrouped this week 
to discuss the big weekend and see if there was potential to hold something similar again in the future. Venues open over the weekend included the new Green Centre, Thurston Library, Cavendish Hall, the Recreation Ground, Thurston Rugby Club and St Peter's Church. Thurston resident Steph Brooks, who had her head shaved off during the big weekend for Steph and Jake's mito mission, said, Little old me, having my head shaved, has raised well over £700 and a huge amount of awareness, which is what it's all about. I'm so, so proud of this achievement. Thank you to everyone who supported me. A group of Bury St Edmunds town councillors have shared concerns over a £25,000 contribution to the Ark Shopping Centre, which would help fund a Santa's Grotto at Christmas this year. The money was pledged at a Bury Town Council meeting last Wednesday evening after a majority of councillors gave the green light during a vote, with Bury Town Mayor Pete Thompson explaining afterwards that the decision was made to increase footfall into the town and that the money had already been set aside for Christmas projects. The total cost of the grotto will be nearly £83,000, which the Ark is subsidising, and it will be based in the old Topshop unit from November 27th until December 24th. It comes as West Suffolk Council said it would back the Town Council and ARC's bid, as well as help to put on a series of activities and events in the run-up to Christmas. With the motion passed, a number of Labour councillors and a Communist councillor shared their objections to the decision. Councillors Diane Hind, Kevin Hind, Donna Higgins, Nicola Ianelli Popham, Katie Parker, Darren Turner, Cliff Waterman and Cyril Bush said they felt the grotto would not represent value for money. They also questioned the £10 cost for entry tickets to the grotto. They said the £25,000 had been pledged at a time when residents were facing fuel cost rises, universal credit cuts and, in a few months, increases to national insurance and proposed a smaller, traditional Santa experience which would cost less to the taxpayer. In response to the objections, Councillor Thompson said that Santa's Grotto project was about increasing footfall into the town around the Christmas period. He said this would hopefully have a positive knock-on effect on the town's businesses. It has redacted funds from other Christmas fair projects which could not go ahead and this is an alternative that we can execute, he said. The aim of the project is to support the town centre business community as a whole so all of the independents will get added footfall. Steve Bunt's ARC Shopping Centre Manager said that the centre was grateful for partnerships with, among others, Bury Town Council, West Suffolk Council and our Bury St Edmunds. A Bury St Edmunds-based trust which offers grants to charitable organisation has launched an appeal for applications. 
The St Edmund's Trust, which originated out of a leftover money used to convert the Square House Hotel in Bury into a private hospital, offers money to organisation supporting people who have health and medical needs. But over the last few months, they have seen a drop-off in applications, and Hazel Bidsley, chairperson, has launched an appeal aimed at organisation which might need financial aid. I would say, if you have got any of your beneficiaries that have got health needs to consider us, Hazel said, I'm available if they email me with any initial inquiries. I can see whether we can back the funding. The St Edmundsbury Trust has given the green light for a number of grants over the course of the pandemic, including for the Suffolk Philharmonic Orchestra, Theatre Royal and Berry Rickshaw. Libby Ranzetta, co-chair of the Rickshaw, which received a 1,440 grant, said, We were delighted. We got the grant to purchase a special winch that we could fit to our cargo bike so that we could safely get wheelchairs on the side. And it's enabled us to take out wheelchair users and children at Riverwalk School. We go there every week and the kids there absolutely love it. And we have taken out adult pensioners as well. It was something we have always wanted to do, but we did not have the equipment. For anyone interested in submitting an application, email Hazel on hazelpidsley at hotmail.com. A community shop has won a top spot in a national award scheme. The Rattlesden and District Community Shop has been named Local Business of the Year in the Good Neighbourhood Awards run by Nextdoor, the neighbourhood website. The shop is run entirely by volunteers and is a non-profit community interest company. Many of the volunteers are retired and were considered vulnerable throughout the pandemic, yet they ensured that the shop continued to operate. As a result, they set up a delivery service for those residents of the village and wider community who were forced to isolate or shelter for many weeks, whilst a rural coffee caravan was brought to life to act as a meeting point for elderly and isolated residents. Also, Rattleston and District Community Shop volunteer Camilla Keeling said, Winning the Next Door Award is a huge boost. It's wonderful to have the recognition of the work all the volunteers put in, keeping the shelves full and the shifts covered. We are so fortunate to have such a fabulous local community. After being unable to take place for the last two years due to waterlogged conditions, the annual East Anglia ploughing match returned last weekend. Despite seven ploughmen having to cancel due to the fuel crisis, 38 tractors arrived at Ampton Hall to take part in the event. Conditions were ideal for ploughing, having rained the weekend before. Organiser Henry Castle said, There was a lot of work put in for all the roadsides and things like that. It was a beautiful day and everyone was extremely happy. The ground was just right because of the rain. A ploughing match veteran this year was Henry's 17th match, 
that he has organised alongside colleague Don Sapsford. There were seven competitions categories in the 38 tractor drivers to take part in. Bill Burgess triumphed in the classic mounted class, while Carol Shaw won first prize in the ladies' competition. John Cole came first in the vintage mounted class and David Disdill won the Ferguson class. Alan Foster took home two trophies. He won the vintage trailed class category and claimed best tractor and plough trophy. The match involves drivers ploughing a 75 by 30 metre area where they initially have to drive straight for 75 metres to be awarded 20 points. Tractors are judged on several other factors by professional judges and are given a total score out of 100. Henry added that after counting costs, there was enough to make a small donation to St Nicholas Hospice Care in Bury St Edmunds. A new cheese shop in St John Street has opened its doors to customers. After moving to Bury St Edmunds, Nicholas Walker decided to open Walker's Cheese last month after 14 years in the industry. I'm very happy with how things are going. People are very happy with the product, he said. I moved up from the southeast three months ago. I was a cheesemaker before that for 14 years in the southeast, and then I decided to come up here and open a cheesemonger's. Nicholas opted to open in St John Street after visiting the town frequently for holidays when growing up. He sells artisan cheese from small British producers that, he said, dairy lovers would not be able to find in supermarkets, but only in delis or cheesemongers. Nicholas fell into the industry after training to be a chef. He said, Since I started work at 16 and trained to be a chef, I always enjoyed artisan food and have always been a big foodie. Tasters are regularly available for customers to try, with Mayfield, a sweet, nutty-tasting cheese that Nicholas used to make, among those on offer. He also offers a wide range of chutneys to accompany the cheese. I'm very happy, he continued. I wasn't expecting much in September, because I know trade in September is a quiet month, which is why I opened, because we're running up to Christmas when things get a lot busier. The town could have another cheese shop in the future, with the Cheese Hole Company Limited having taken on the former Anna premises in Hatter Street last year. And now we're going to move on to our letter section. And my first letter is from Ian Smith from Bury St Edmunds. He heads his letter, Selfishness has caused the fuel shortage. I felt I must put pen to paper just to say well done to those of you buffoons reading this column who were selfish, inconsiderate, and responsible for the queues at the various petrol stations last Friday, when, after being told that there was not a petrol shortage and therefore no need to panic, you did exactly that, and as a consequence created fuel shortages for other road users. Just a thought, 
Perhaps if the media had not announced the small minor problem with fuel deliveries in the first instance, then the Friday queuing, which also continued over into Saturday, might not have happened in the first place. Question. What percentage of the petrol-panicking readership were also responsible for the loo roll shortage last year when the COVID lockdown episode first began? Hands up. Well done for being part of the selfish me-me. I'm all right, Jack Society. Wear your badge with pride. (laughs) Now, my first letter is signed by all the councillors whose names I read out a minute ago, but this is what they have written. On September 22nd, Bury St Edmunds Town Council agreed funding of £25,000 as a contribution to a Santa's Grotto in an unoccupied store which is in the privately managed Ark Shopping Centre. We, the undersigned, feel that at a total cost of £83,000, this does not represent value for money. The grotto will only be open for 15 days in total. Additionally, the charge will be £10 per child, with a maximum of two adults per child. Projected ticket sales are circa just £23,000. The the undernoted councillors wish to record their opposition to the funding at a time when residents are facing huge fuel cost rises, universal credit cuts and, in a few months, increases to national insurance. We do want to support our local businesses and help our town centre to thrive, but do not feel that this is the right option and would have preferred a smaller traditional Santa experience which could be enjoyed by more people at a lower price and I won't read all the names again (laughs) there are a lot of them aren't there (laughs) Uh, right my next letter is from Gloria Mean and she is also from Bury St Edmunds heads her letter street lights broken since November in November 2020 I tried reporting some of the street lighting that was not working in Beaton's Way, Bury St Edmunds, as some had been out of action since the start of the building work for the new school. Some of the lamps did not have plates on with the numbers to identify them, and still don't. So this was a bit of a struggle. I made the original phone call in November 2020, followed by an email in December when the lights were still not working. The reference number for this call, which is logged with Suffolk County Council Highways Department, is 307430. I have had various reasons as to why they are not working, and all give me a response assuring me that they will be working shortly. When I complained that the lights were still not working after emailing regularly for many weeks, the responses I then received were that my comments had been added on to the call log and I could follow the complaints procedure if I was unhappy with the response. Well, we are now nearly a year on since I first logged this and I noticed that half the lights in Western Way, as well as the original one in Beeston's Way, are out as they yet again dig up the road. It's amazing just how many times there have been traffic lights there because of the roadworks in the past two years. 
by writing into your page. I'm hoping that someone within Suffolk County Council might recognise and respond to the very real issues concerning personal safety that are obviously present there. A positive response would be good to see. Now, I've just found that I have another letter about the grotto. Uh, and it says, uh, this is from David Baldry of Ruffham. £83,000 for a grotto? Are they importing the snow from Lapland? These councillors need to remember that it is not their money. It is the council taxpayers. The £25,000 pledged from the council should be used for desperate needs such as children with special needs or the homeless. Do they seriously believe that people are going to head to Bury just because there is a grotto at a cost of £10 per child for a cheap plastic toy? At that price, I would like to know how much an hour the elves are on. I might even apply. Um, my last letter is an appeal and it comes from Karen Burnett and she heads her letter searching for family members I'm looking for my cousins Susan, Irene Bennett, James Bennett, Richard Bennett and Peter King all lived around the Bury St Edmunds and Risby areas my maiden name was Karen Burnett I then married and my surname was Barthorpe. I got divorced, remarried and my surname was then Rogers. My mum, Irene Burnett, passed away in 1990 and was sister to Harry King, who died in 1992. I attended Harry's funeral and was the only niece who attended, though. Of course, his daughters, son and grandchildren attended. I can be con contacted on... Zero seven eight seven eight eight zero three four five two. My last letter is from Sir Jeff Hurst, MBE, former England footballer and World Cup winner. Walking in the fresh air is something that many of us have appreciated more than ever since the pandemic began. As someone who tries to walk every day, I value the physical and well-being benefits that it brings, as well as the time to think and reflect. I'm writing to encourage your readers to put their best foot forward and take part in Sue Ryder's Walk to Remember 2021. Healthcare charity Sue Ryder is a cause that is close to my heart. My daughter was cared for in her final days at one of Sue Ryder's hospices, the Sue Ryder Leckhampton Court in 2010. The compassionate care she received meant an awful lot to me and my family. Sue Ryder does fantastic work being there for families like mine. However, it remains reliant on voluntary income and needs your readers' support to ensure it can keep offering expert care. That is why I want to tell you about how you can get involved with Walk to Remember this October. It is an opportunity to get together with family and friends to celebrate the memory of your loved one, raise vital funds and help Sue Ryder fill someone's last days with love.
You can join hundreds of other supporters and walk 5 or 10 kilometres at one of Sue Ryder's organised events, Walk to Remember in Bedford or Peterborough, or Starlight Hike in Cheltenham or Worth Valley. You can also organise your own Walk to Remember and do 5 or 10 kilometres or a distance of your choice on any day during October. And now we're going to move on to uh, two features. My first feature is written by Martin Taylor, and this appeared in the Berry Free Press. And it's headed, How Mary Lost Her Grand Abbey Tomb. Mary Rose Tudor, born in 814-96, youngest sister of Henry VIII, went on to become Queen of France, marrying the age Louis XII at the tender age of 18. According to contemporary accounts, she was quite a looker. Louis died just after three months' marriage, albeit with a smile on his face. As a widow queen, Mary was a valuable asset, and so Henry dispatched a trusted courtier, Charles Brandon, over to France to retrieve her. Unbeknown to Henry, Mary had her eye on Charles, and the upshot of it all was she married him, reminding Henry she married Louis for duty, but married for love this time. Henry could have both executed for marrying without his permission, but they were eventually forgiven. The couple, now styled as the Duke and Duchess of Suffolk, lived at Westhorpe, literally holding court in a pavilion when they visited Berry Fair. Mary liked to remind people of her royal status. They had three children, survived infancy, but she was dogged by ill health, succumbing to the Tudor curse, the sweating sickness, possibly TB in 1533. Her lavish funeral, a huge cortege with French heralds, was the last great event at the Abbey Church prior to the dissolution in 1539. She was laid to rest in a splendid alabaster tomb. When the fateful day came and the Abbey despoiled, she was moved soon afterwards to a somewhat plainer tomb in St Mary's. On September the 6th, 1784, it was decided to lower the height of the tomb as it got in the way of the communion table. At the same time, her coffin was open under the watchful eye of a local surgeon, Sir John Cullum. She had two foot-long tresses, but reports differed as to its colour, red or gold, but a lock of it was taken and can be seen today in the Moises Hall Museum. It is golden. A simple grave is still in St Mary's. Now this is all about surfing the airwaves. If you want to speak to someone on the far side of the world, or even in the next town, most of us pick up a phone or connect on the web. But there is another way. It might involve state-of-the-art technology or old tape measures and offcuts of overflow pipe. And to devotees, it is way more exciting. The world of amateur radio is a very broad church, according to members of a local club. It embraces everything from the simplest radio and homemade antenna to the most complex equipment capable of bouncing signals off the moon. 
But however you choose to hit the airwaves, one of the most important things, judging from a recent meeting of Bury St Edmunds Amateur Radio Society, is enthusiasm, and they have that in bucket loads. It seems that the attraction of radio versus a phone is the challenge, and the idea of going on air not knowing who will answer, they might be just down the road or on a remote island thousands of miles away. And on radio, any number of people can join in a conversation, which is known as a net. The group meets monthly at Ruffham Control Tower Museum. Among the few clues outside are a whip-thin aerial and a wire running from the building. Inside, the room is buzzing. They did not meet for well over a year because of Covid, and for most of them this is the first catch-up in person. Paul Stalibras is demonstrating how to build a beam antenna used to improve signals out of surprisingly mundane materials. Everything you need to transmit and receive can now be bought, but making your own adds an extra dimension. It's made with metal tape measures fixed to overflow pipe, he reveals. Buying something ready-made could cost £100. This costs eight or £9. There are a lot of young amateurs with a foundation licence who are only allowed to use 10 watts of power, but they can transmit further with something like that. It concentrates the energy in one direction, says Paul, a member for 20 years who trained in electronics and is attracted to the technical aspects of the hobby. The club, known as B-Sears, is believed to have started in the 1960s or early 70s. Every operator has a unique call sign, and the club has one that is very special. Its founder was T.F. Townsend, who had been a radio operator since the 1920s. His call sign was G2TO, which was one of the very earliest, says club chairman Melvin Green, and he donated it to us. Five years ago, the club was a bit quiet, but in the last couple of years, due to COVID restrictions, people who have been at home or have licences but hadn't been on the air for some time have made contact with us. Also, a lot of younger people are coming into the hobby, so that has been a big benefit for the club. It's a hobby that went out of favour a bit, but in the last ten years, it's coming back. I think it's a case of challenging yourself... There are so many different modes of communication. You can use a digital mode that's connected to your computer. In the past, we would just have been using high-frequency radio. Conditions would have had to be right, and you'd be juggling all the equipment to get the best signal. There are all kinds of enemy to a clear signal, but one of their biggest bugbears is the Christmas blow-up Santa. Things like LED lights and phone chargers create interference. A lot of problems at Christmas are caused by blow-up Santas. They have little electric motors in them, and because they are made cheaply, they don't have the same standards as EU stuff. But you cannot just buy the equipment and start transmitting. Every radio amateur must be licensed. The frequencies we use are quite tight and are governed by Ofcom, says Melvin, who works as a gardener and got his licence about six years ago. I got into it after Hurricane Katrina in America. 
With communications down, it was the amateur radio operators in that area calling out to the rest of the world that they needed help. I thought that was a very useful part of amateur radio. In the same way, operators helped out during the terrible floods in East Anglia in 1955. In the old days of amateur radio, things were very different. Learning Morse code was compulsory. George Wood, who is 94, lives in Hunston and is the club's oldest member. Morse was used a lot in the old days. You can get further with it than with speech, he says. I was a radio officer at sea in the last few months of the Second World War, then stayed in the Merchant Navy for five years. I got my amateur licence in 1957. I'd been round the world with the Merchant Navy, and it was a way of still talking to people all over the world. Another veteran of the airwaves is Doug Durrant, 91, who, like George, got his first licence in 1957. Then, to get your licence, you had to do 12 words a minute in Morse, he says. When I was at school during the war, we had a mallard radio at home with short wave. It had some bands on it that were for amateur. I didn't know what they were, but I could listen. Hearing people talking from all over the world sparked a lifelong interest, which led to a career in telecoms with the Civil Aviation Authority. I've made a lot of good friends through radio, he adds. Derek Hayden from Brandon took a 21-year break from amateur radio before rediscovering it. I found all my documents and was going to shred them. Then I thought, no, I'll get my licence back. I do a lot of digital stuff. It's a broad church. A lot of people come into it from CB radio because they enjoy talking to people. Yesterday I spoke to two Danish operators, one in Scotland, one in Perth, Australia, and one in Oklahoma. Paul Holman from Bressingham, who used to be a gas engineer, graduated into the hobby from CB radio. People here gave me so much help when I first started, he says. I always get enjoyment out of making things and electronics. I make all my own aerials. If you put a call out and someone comes back from halfway around the world, you have achieved something. To contact the club, go to bsears.co.uk. And now for a few snippets from Times Gone By. And from ten years ago, Helping Hand for Toddler Group. In 2011, a vital toddler group was launched in a village after receiving a helping hand from a church. Tiny Toes Thurston had already registered 75 children with a month of opening following funding from Great Barton Free Church. The church was approached by parents after Thurston's previous parent and toddler group closed in spring due to lack of funding and support. Caroline Pointer, chairman of the Tiny Toes Thurston Committee, said, It's an enormous village, and the mums need something local. In the Berry Free Press, Louise Paldry and daughter Tabitha were pictured enjoying playtime. From 25 years ago, a toddler in the park. In 1996, about 100 people braved the elements to take part in a half-mile round-table-sponsored toddler at New, New uh, Nowton Park. 
Face painters were kept busy as toddlers put on brave faces of lions and other fierce animals for their walk. With the final countdown live from Gary Lineker on BBC Radio 5, toddlers at Nowton Park joined others at starting lines all over the country. The previous year, there were 96 toddlers nationwide, organised by Round Table Branches, which raised £250,000 for children in need. And in 1996, there were 120 toddlers. It raised £900 in Bury in 1995. And lastly, a hundred years ago, lower prices for corn and stock. Wednesday, September the 28th, 1921, was a bad day for business at Bury St Edmunds Corn Exchange with values of almost everything marked down and a poor demand all round. Wheat was two shillings to three shillings per quarter lower. Ordinary malting barley something like ten shillings lower at fifty shillings to sixty-five shillings. With better sorts holding the prices better and fine parcels making to eighty-five shillings. Oats lower at 32 shillings to 35 shillings. Beans and peas slow and easier. Mace 2 shillings down. Milling offers 10 shillings a tonne lower. And linseed cakes about £16.10 shillings per tonne. At Lacey Scott and Sons auction large supply of all classes of stock. Trade was very dull selling considerably less than the previous week. And I have three <coughs> news in brief items. Our Bury St Edmunds has announced that the town's Christmas light switch-on will take place on November the 18th. The event in the Butter Market in Cornhill will host a festive market and offer free pitches at the event for local community groups, charities and BID members. Nigel Huddleston, MP, Minister for Sport and Tourism, visited Bury St Edmunds as part of a Suffolk-wide tour organised by Visit East of England. The minister was taken on a guided tour of the Abbey Gardens and told about the Abbey 1000 celebrations planned for 2022. The 14-acre gardens were listed as the fifth most visited free attraction in England with 1,021,048 visitors last year by Visit England's Annual Attraction Survey 2020. I wonder how they counted them to that <laughs> accuracy. And finally, Friday saw people across the region take part in the world's biggest coffee morning to raise money for Macmillan Cancer Support. The Ladies of Pakenham hosted one of several that took place in the area, raising a total of £421. It was great, said Mary Kirby, who attended the event. It was brilliantly supported by our village. It was just a lovely get-together for our village and the cakes were amazing. Everyone worked so hard. So many people have had relatives who are going through cancer with the services of Macmillan, but they are an amazing charity. A coffee morning in West Row proved to be just as successful as the village came together to raise a staggering £2,640. 
Supichi, a member of the organising committee, said, We were very well supported. Our organisers wish to give everyone a big thank you for all their hard work. We had lots of beautiful cakes and it was very well attended. Well, we're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the telephone number you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, the Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. And the two telephone numbers that have been mentioned in this edition are Karen Burnett on 07878-803452 and the Wickenbrook History is 01440-820052. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then... It's from Roger, Katrina, Colin, Neil and Sue. It's goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.